A very good morning to you all and a very warm welcome back to my study. And there was just one notice that Jim and Rachel forgot, which is, come on, Scotland. What a great result yesterday. Today, we're going to finish what we started last week in our study on Hebrews chapter 11. You'll probably find it helpful to follow along in your own Bible at home. Once again, today's passage refers to a series of Old Testament stories, which I'll try and summarise and interpret as we go along. But the author's main point in all this is to illustrate the faith of the characters involved. And as we saw last week, chapter 11 comes sandwiched in between two powerful encouragements to endurance. Faith expressed just once and then put away for a rainy day is of no use to our writer. For the purpose of this letter, faith means perseverance under pressure. Its first readers and hearers were culturally Jewish Christians, and to them, the great subtext of this teaching was their forefathers' initial failure to enter the promised land, because they simply ran out of faith. At the end of chapter 10, it says, they shrank back to their own destruction, rather than pressing on to their reward. The title of this pair of talks then is Shrinking Back or Pressing On. And as we ourselves press on into the uh, study, I've asked Claire to read for us Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 and following. Claire. Sure. Um, this is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 12, 3. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained principle, or obtained promises, 
stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run the, with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the for the joy that was set before him endured to the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Thank you. <clears throat> we saw last week that the first half of the chapter makes four challenging propositions about faith. And as I read it this time around, the second half offers us four more. Verses 17 to 19, faith asks us to go beyond what we currently understand and believe. Verses 20 to 22, faith reaches into the future from the present. Verses 23 to 27, faith puts us at odds with earthly authorities. Verses 28 to 31, faith makes the difference between victory and defeat, safety and destruction. Let's look at these four elements in turn and see where the argument ends up. First, first point, faith asks us to go beyond what we currently believe. This is verses 17 to 19. These verses refer to a very difficult Bible story. Abraham, the forefather of God's chosen people, was required by God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Well, Isaac was the miracle child of his and Sarah's old age. He was the end of the bloodline, and his death would surely thwart God's plan for Abraham to become the father of a nation. We can only imagine Abraham's mental and emotional turmoil and anguish as this went on. This wasn't just an issue as what he was prepared to give up and what he was prepared to do for God. Any human sacrifice, let alone killing his own son, flew in the face of everything he knew about God and certainly about his plan for the future. But just as the knife was about to fall, God provided an alternative sacrifice and Isaac was saved. This whole idea is dangerous ground, isn't it? Because best practice is always to weigh what we think God is saying against what we know from scripture about his character. So what's going on here? 
helpfully for us, verse 19 explains the cold facts on the face of Genesis 22. Abraham actually believed that God was able to bring Isaac back from the dead. I don't know whether this was accepted Jewish teaching at the time or whether it was something completely new that appears here for the first time, but it certainly helps. One of my commentaries points out he considered really means he'd worked out that God could raise the dead. Abraham's understanding and faith have been stretched by this terrible process into something much bigger and stronger and deeper. It's like the process outlined in Psalm 23, where the poet enters the valley of the shadow of death, a frightened sheep, and comes out a triumphant human being. My old friend... <clears throat> My old friend and teacher, Dr. Rick Williams, refers to this process in the title of his book, Uncomfortable Growth. An earlier pivot point in this epistle is chapter 5, verse 13. It encourages us to grow up from spiritual babies, as it says, unskilled in the word of righteousness, into mature adults, who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. If Abraham had stuck with what he knew, he would never have understood that God can raise the dead. But now this experience and understanding lies at the very root of the Jewish people and hence of us today. And it made of Abraham a worthy father of God's chosen people. Incredibly, the comparison with God the Father himself goes unspoken, so we simply won't go there. But in times of doubt and stress, we should never shrink back from examining our spiritual foundations. If we examine them, we can fix them. If we don't, what started as a few cracks or a little bit of subsidence can bring the whole edifice crashing down. In my experience, many of those who fall away from the faith were never really among the doubting Thomases to begin with. They were precisely the guys who traded most arrogantly in what I last week called the terrible theological certainties of youth. The life of faith develops through challenge, not through stagnation. Faith requires us to press on beyond the truths we already grasp. Point two, faith touches the future from the present. Verses 20 to 22 move quickly through the next three generations of the patriarchs. Blind old Isaac, in what Gerald Coates used to call a prophetic mistake, ends up blessing the younger son, Jacob, as his heir. The older brother had earlier sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. And a man governed by his appetites rather than by faith and reason didn't have the right stuff to be the head of this family. Jacob, 20, verse 21, blessed the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, according to who and what they were going to become. And Joseph, verse 22, the effective ruler of all Egypt at the time, asked for his bones to be disinterred and reburied in Canaan when the time came. This was looking ahead hundreds of years to the Exodus, the defining narrative of the Jewish people and perhaps of the whole Bible. 
is a very Hebrew thing, I think, that the reader writer is doing here. He's lining up the forefathers of Israel one by one and remembering all our famous deeds of faith. When we bless or prophesy, it's never quite clear whether we are speaking out what God is going to do or actually speaking things into life in his name. This tension seems to me inherent in the nature of faith. We listen to God and faithfully speak out his truth as best we can. Does he then do something in response to our faith? Or are we just faithfully predicting something that he's going to do anyway? Well, God alone knows. Either way, it takes faith to reach into the future from the present. Point three, faith puts us at odds with earthly authorities. This is verses 23 to 27. Now we're fast forwarding possibly 400 years to the next great hero of the faith, Moses. First, we remember his parents' faith in hiding the baby rather than giving him up to the Egyptians to be killed. They risked their lives to do this, but their faith was rewarded. Baby Moses was found by Pharaoh's daughter and brought up as her own. She even hired the child's mother as his nurse. But later on, when push came to shove, the adult Moses, prince of Egypt, chose his own enslaved people over their Egyptian overlords. His confrontation with Pharaoh plays out in Exodus chapters 5 to 11. Ten times, Moses tells, Oh, Pharaoh, let my people go. And ten times, Pharaoh refuses. And Egypt takes the consequences. He was here facing down an absolute ruler who could have put him to death any moment without turning a hair. But when verse 27 says he didn't fear the king's anger, I don't think it's talking about the time Moses fled from Egypt after killing a man. I think it refers to when he led from Egypt, 40 years older and wiser after his own wilderness years. I think something transformational happened to him in those years as a shepherd, looking after somebody else's flock. And maybe verses 26 and 27 signal that we're now coming back into the land precisely where we took off in verse 1. Because now we return between the mind battle, between the seen and the unseen. And here is Moses' scorecard. If you don't want to know the result, look away now. Treasures of Egypt, nil. The undefined reward, five. Fear of a murderous king, nil. Faith in the invisible God, five. We shouldn't be surprised if our faith puts us at odds with the boss from time to time. Or perhaps in your lifetime, if not in mine, with laws and governments. Point four. Faith turns defeat into victory and destruction into salvation. Verse 28 concerns the 10th and most dreadful plague of Egypt, the death of the firstborn. Israelite homes escaped the destroyer by obeying God's strange instruction and painting their doorposts with the blood of a Passover lamb. 
every household that didn't have the faith to do this lost their eldest child that night. After that, Pharaoh did let Israel go. But then he changed his mind and pursued after them. He watched as the Red Sea dried up in front of them and still didn't believe in God's power. Arrogantly, he followed them into the seabed and his whole army was destroyed as the waters flowed back over them. Faith would have seen the hand of God in the miracle and wondered who was on whose side. Joshua 5 contains my favourite conversation in the whole Bible. Before a major battle, Joshua encounters a man with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua asks him, are you for us or against us? And the man answers, no, but I'm captain of the Lord's armies. So the question isn't, is God on my side? It's, am I on God's side? Verses 30 and 31 tell how the impenetrable fortifications of Jericho fell, not to some mighty siege engine, but to a bunch of guys marching around the city blowing trumpets, because God said so. And the only household that was spared in the sack of that city was that of a prostitute who had seen by faith what her fellow townspeople could not. She saw which side she needed to be on when the chips, and indeed the walls, were down. She risked her own life to hide some Israel spies, and when the walls came down, she was saved in return. So in any given situation, which side does faith indicate that God is on? Because that is all that matters. Taking my cue from verse 32, I'm not going to comment on this passage down to verse 38. Time would fail me if I did. The Bible tells me so. As we ended last week, so we end here. Verse 39, if you remember, is almost a direct repeat of verse 13. These guys, all these guys, great figures as they were, did not receive the promise. They still await their perfection along with us on the last day. Until then, says verse 1, they are up there on the bleachers watching us down the track. All these illustrious men and women of faith are waiting with anticipation for us to finish our own race. Olympic athletes back in the day, in the absence of lycra, competed naked, partly to show off their wonderful physique, but partly so that their sweaty clothes wouldn't weigh them down or impede their movement. Verse one says that we likewise should strip away from our lives anything that would hold us back as we run with endurance this race of faith. All these heroes are up there cheering us on. Jesus himself is our finish line. So verse two, we must keep, our, keep him in sight at all times. His faith is the perfect example for us, but he's much more than that. He is also the founder and perfecter of our faith. And he aims to finish what he started in us. The question is whether we will stick with the program against all adversity and allow him to do so. He kept his eyes on the joy that was set before him, even on the cross. But verse three, his whole public life was lived out in the face of low grade and sometimes dangerous hostility. 
we need the same endurance for the small obstacles that we need for the great sacrifices. I might even suggest that it's precisely our endurance in dealing with the petty trials of day-to-day -day life that prepares us for the great ones that might only come once in a lifetime. Endurance in the daily race will see us through to the finish line and our inexpressibly great reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that all of us may press on and not shrink back. That we may not be weary or faint-hearted in doing the right thing, in seeing where you're leading, seeing whose side you're on, and placing ourselves on that side. Lord, affirm the foundations of our faith. We look to you, our founder, our foundation digger in our faith and the finisher of our faith. And we say yes to you. We will walk with you. We will allow you to complete in us the work that you've begun. Amen.